Hey, everybody, it's Sean Hayes. I'm here with Jason Bateman and Will Arnett, and this is a show called Smartless, where one of us brings on a surprise guest that the other two don't know about, and it's super fun. And uh, and here we go. Is that good? No, that was terrible. <laughs> Smart. Just chat like you're a normal human being, Sean. Can you do that for like a minute? <laughs> Is that possible? Well, I've, I, do you have a stopwatch? You can go. I have this pair of shorts that I wear, and I get embarrassed for myself because um, they're on the verge of being too short, like the 1970s. Do you prefer short shorts or like longboard shorts? Well, this is going to sound like I'm quoting a song, but I like short shorts. <laughs> you mean for all the 80 plus listeners? I like a short short. If you're asking me honestly, I do like well, a short short. Well, because look what I'm asking. You're you're just fucking disgusting. Thank you. Hey, you would wear denim floss. Yeah. Just to show off your legs and your tan. That's true. And my, uh, Alessandra said to me today, she said, you have the smallest tan line, oh. like I wear a G-string, which I don't. You kind of do. I'd love to. Have you ever worn a G-string? You look well, like I bought a, I bought a You look Speedo. like you would wear it confidently, and people would be so embarrassed for you. I bought a Speedo when I went to France. I bought a Speedo as a bit, and I wore it a little bit. My friends were like, <laughs> "Dude, you got to stop with the Speedo." <laughs> That's disgusting. And it was so gross. So, Will, if you and I were on a deserted island together, yeah. how long before you made the first move? <laughs> how how long is the expected life expectancy? <laughs> On the on the island. On the island. I don't know. Maybe like uh, maybe like three years. Okay, so you're looking at me for three years. How long before you go? Hey, that looks. I'd like to hit that. Shoot, two years and three hundred sixty four days. If we knew that at three years it was over, I guess it'll, the last day. The last day, you'd be like, I could hit that. Just for fuck it for the last day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fuck it. What do I care? Okay, there's Jason. Now I've got it, and we're rolling. Yeah. Can you hear us? Oh, this is so exciting. I can hear you and I can see you. Oh. You're receiving me. So, uh, Jason, you missed my incredible question earlier. If we were all three to, on a deserted island together, how long before both of you made a move on me? To eat you? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> He'd see me as a bag of Doritos. Knowing Bateman's snacky tendencies would be hour six. I know. Um, okay, guys, our, our guest today. I think we've lost the three people that were listening to us. I've never met this person. Oh. I've always wanted to. I'm a huge fan. This person probably hung up, too. He's an author, a philosopher, a neuroscientist, and he has a very successful podcast. His academic background is in philosophy and cognitive neuroscience. So I totally geek out on this Definitely stuff. has hung up. Mostly, I wanted to meet him because of his religious philosophies. He's the first person to introduce me to the idea of atheism. So I'm super-duper excited for all of us to meet Sam Harris. No kidding. Gentlemen. Hello, Sam. Sam Harris. Hello there. Nice to meet you. I'm so glad you didn't hang up on I us. I didn't know we were going to be talking about the X-rated Donner Party. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so listen, first of all, Sam, I can't even believe I'm, I'm looking at you. I'm meeting you. If you only knew how I've been a super duper gigantic fan for so long. You are so fascinating to me and there's so much to get to. I feel like, you know, it's like Christmas morning and Christmas you know, it's about the birth of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, of which you don't believe. <laughs> but because of you, I first started deeply questioning all things religion. 
And I want to just start at the beginning. Can you pinpoint the one experience or person or whatever it is that enlightened you? Because I can look to you and say you are the person that enlightened me. Uh, on this particular point of uh, disbelief in, in a personal God? Yeah, and, all that. I, I, yeah. Um, it really wasn't one person. I mean, I think I, you know, most people who don't get indoctrinated into religion start that way, right? I mean, you have to be convinced that uh, a certain book was authored by the creator of the universe. Otherwise, you wouldn't just spontaneously form that belief. So I, I didn't, in my upbringing, I didn't have any, uh, I didn't have any atheist uh, indoctrination. I mean, I, I honestly knew, no, before I wrote my first book, The End of Faith, which uh -huh. sort of inducted me into the, the crowd of atheists, uh, I didn't think in terms of atheism versus religion. In fact, that, the word atheist doesn't even appear in the book. But um, I did not have a religious background I was reacting to. I mean, the, the end of faith, as you as you know, was my right. uh, immediate reaction to September 11th. I mean, once people started flying planes into our buildings. Um, wow. From, so from after 9-11, you, you wrote that. That's um, because I, the book I read that completely enlightened me was Letter to a Christian Nation. That was your second book. Right. So that was my second book. Yeah. And I was reading it and I was just like, yeah, why aren't we, we're never taught to question things. Well, not like in the seventies and eighties, you know, when I was growing up, we weren't told to question things. We just accept it because that's the thing you were born into, you know? Wait, wait, quick, 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 Sean, be honest. Did you read it or listen to it? It was read to me. <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. <laughs> and I, I needed pictures. I needed pictures drawn. <laughs> no, um, but to you, it just seems like we're all forced to label ourselves in some kind of category of religion or lack thereof and then get judged for whatever we choose. Do you feel people have that, that, that they have to stake a claim of some kind of faith or like a non-faith or just can someone just be neutral or it feels like we always all of us have to say what we are? Yeah, no, so I've resisted that that demand because that really is demand that's coming from theology, right? So, I mean, this, this is a controversial point among atheists, but I've I've often said, um, I, mean, I think there was a, a talk on YouTube, I think it's called The Problem with Atheism. I've often said that we don't have to define ourselves in in, in these terms. I mean, no one defines himself as a non-astrologer, right? You, you, don't, you right. don't have to resist right. astrology by first joining a group of non-astrologers and then going to bad conferences and bad hotels you know, and 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 organizing around this variable of of not being an astrologer, and that's what atheists tend to do. Let me ask you this, Sam, because I've always wondered this, and I and I got to say, you know, I grew up, I went to um, in Canada, what, what was uh, called Anglican um, schools, um, which is Episcopalian in this country. Um, that's hockey in the morning and Bible study yeah, after lunch. That's right. Yeah, yeah. sure. And then hockey, and then hockey again. Yeah, and then hockey again. So it's like a hockey sandwich, but then they just call it Anglicanism. But, but Church of England, whatever. And my, but I don't know enough about it, even though I sort of studied it, et cetera, at school. And one of my sisters actually has a number of uh, degrees of Bachelor of Religion, Master in Theology from Yale, Divinity School, et cetera. But it seems to me as sort of the layman, uh, literally, um, that the thing that has always lended legitimacy to religion is just time. Right. Does that seem fairly accurate that after? Well, I think more, more to the point, death. death. Without, okay. without death, without the ending of, of right. personal time, there, there'd be no rationale for this. But I mean, you know, you look at the, the sort of the, the genesis, if you will, 
Thank you. Got it. Of, of the Mormon church. You know, uh, uh, Joseph Smith was laughed out of upstate New York. He was um, kicked out of every place that he went. And, it, you know, that the Church of Latter-day Saints, and I mean no offense to, to people who happen to be, but that that was for a long time that they were seen as um, heretics, whatever, and they were kicked out of every town they went to. And But eventually, over a certain amount of time, they became legitimized as a uh, religion. Is mm-hmm. is that fair to say? And in, in that... All religions kind of go along that same route. Um, we have a lot of religions that have come up that have been very popular in California in the last 50 years. That um, what, Which one? That a generation from now will be, I don't know, I can't think of one off the top of my head, but that yeah. might be a generation from now considered to be less of a cult and more of an actual religion. That seems yeah. to be a theme. Yeah. Well, well, I mean, it's a, it's not a, a fact that speaks to the the truth of any one doctrine, obviously, right? So right. It, it is just a fact that given enough time and a, a large enough uh, population of subscribers, a cult begins to seem and, and, and it begins to be treated as a, a mainstream religion. But And then certain religions, like Mormonism, sort of on the boundary here because we, we the truth is we know too much about Joseph Smith. The, the origins of, of Mormonism are not sufficiently shrouded in the mists of history mm-hmm. so as for it to get the treatment that you know Christianity and, and Judaism and Islam get, which right. is a free pass on all these questions of miracles. I and mean, we just know, you know, you know, the South Park episode on Mormonism is just too much like the actual history of Mormonism uh, to, <laughs> to, to, for Mormonism to survive, you know, full contact with, with right. modern reality. Well, yeah. the musical by those guys called Book of Mormon. It was yeah. Like, yeah. <laughs> awesome. Um, but, you know, my beef is simple with Catholicism. It's where's the beef, right? Yeah, where is your beef? You've been asking that. And if we, back, see, he likes to take it back to the deserted island. I'll show you where the beef is. But if <laughs> Just the, let the dogs out and let us know what your beef is. <laughs> Wait, who, who let the dogs out and found the beef? So, look, Sam's checking his email. So, um, <laughs> so my beef is simple. I, I, I grew up in a diehard Catholic family, my aunt and uncle on my mom's side were a nun and a priest, respectively, left mm. the convent and got married, and but grew up hardcore Catholic. And then obviously the main topic of discussion whenever you bring up Catholicism and people who question it is the hypocrisy, right? So here I am, this gay kid growing up Catholic. I don't understand why I'm going to hell and and the priests who committed child abuse to the thousands of children around the world aren't going to hell, <laughs> you know, they're forgiven. And and basically the hypocrisy was the thing that always bothered me. So when I saw Religious by Bill Maher, which yeah. I thought I think is a great documentary, it's fascinating, he questions all religions. I emailed Bill afterwards and I go, all things being equal, if every religion in the world believes their God is the correct God, don't they all cancel each other out? Yeah, yeah, no, that, that's one great point made by Bertrand Russell, a famous atheist. Um, he said that even if we knew that one of our religions was perfectly true, right. given that there are so many on offer, every religious believer should expect damnation purely as a matter of probability, right? If you, you just because you got <laughs> right. you got at least five, and the truth is you got five hundred. Right. 
but let's just say you only have five, then at best you've got a 20% chance of having picked right <laughs> or been born into the right circumstance, right? Yeah. So, um, and that's just, yeah. it, that's that's where we are. And so it's, and they're, they're mutually nullifying. And the, I think the, the most important point is that all they are, all these religions are, are records of human conversations, right? I mean, all we have is right. human conversation by which to orient right. in reality. And the question is, do you want a 21st century conversation about the nature of reality and how to live within it? Or do you want to be anchored to a an Iron Age conversation, right? Right, and right. Religion is the only area uh, in human thought where you win points for proving that you are immune to all possible evidence and argument. And therefore, it's almost impossible to have a discussion about and it. And that you're not open to conversation. You're saying, you're right. basically, what's explicit here when you're making a faith claim is that, listen, these beliefs are so important to me that I'm not willing to talk about them rationally, really. Right. I'll pretend to be rational, but the truth is I'm not actually open to evidence and argument that undercuts these cherished ideas. And what we need is a, a willingness to talk about the full range of human experience and what we want to get out of human life and what's rational to want in human life in 21st century terms. And, and 21st century terms are intrinsically non-divisive because this is an open conversation that does not respect accidents of the geography of one's birth or the linguistic partitioning of the world, right? The fact that you grew up speaking one language as opposed to another. No, every all of the world's thinking can be translated now. There's, right. we, we have no right to be provincial in our thinking, ultimately, right? And religion is the only system of thought where the norm, the respected norm is, no, no, the conversation has to reliably break down on these most important questions about how to live and how, you know, how to raise your children and what's worth dying for. And I mean, this is, you know, and this is all totally respectable to just prove completely immune to persuasion on these points, no matter what science says, no, no matter what evidence shows up in, in terrestrial reality, right? So it's just, it's like there's no way to disconfirm these beliefs once you make this initial claim that we can't possibly understand God's will and this specific right. book was, was written by him. Yeah, I, I was on a press junket once for an animated film that had to do with the subject of inventions. And the interviewer asked me, you know, what's your favorite invention? And I said, religion. And the studio didn't like that answer. Yeah. <laughs> so I, I said, uh, because to me, every single, th every single thing in the world is invented. Yeah, yeah. Right? And so every concept is invented. The word table is invented. A table itself is invented. Religion is invented. Sean, are you currently on acid? Because this yes. these seems mm -hmm. to be revelations. You, you are. I want to yeah. lie down and elevate your feet. <laughs> I'm, oh, I'm, you, you're telling me I'm not lying down right now? <laughs> um, so there really is no harm in anybody having these deep, seated feelings of faith and belief unless those those beliefs are absolute such that if someone is on your land that you think in your religion is uh, entitled to you you now have the justification and the the moral right to kill that person that's where everything went off the rails because obviously none of us here probably no one listening begrudges anybody for their own little set of beliefs if that keeps them on some moral path 
math and uh, et cetera. But when you start inflicting real world consequences on somebody because what somebody else believes is in violation or, or inconsistent with what you believe, obviously that's, that's a recipe for disaster. And that's a problem we have in so many corners of this world, right? Well, no, it actually gets worse than that because it, it oh, good. beliefs don't have to be absolute. They can just be probabilistic, right? So just, just take, let's say I think that prayer often works or stands a good chance of working yeah. and just put me in a role of any kind of responsibility, right? I'm an airline pilot, right? And I think that I can sort of land the plane with prayer, right? I don't have to do the full safety check because yeah. God's watching out for me and my people. And uh, I'm going to protect all these passengers just fine with a little, you know, a little tour of the rosary or or just a couple of mantras or people believe that sort of thing right now right. as evidenced by the fact that they're willing to die under certain circumstances to make the rhetorical point. Or just imagine I'm a parent and, you know, there's endless numbers of stories of, you know, parents doing completely irrational things with their kids, you know, denying the medical care or imposing, you know, crazy punishments on them or putting them in circumstances that are, you know, just objectively dangerous and pointless based on some kind of slavish attachment to a religious idea, right? And and the truth is, there's the worst case. The most benign-looking belief, if held for the wrong reasons, you know, if held dogmatically, could actually lead to massive loss of life because it, it resists being changed through further considerations about evidence. And some of the best example of this is something like all human life is sacred, right? And it's sacred from the moment of conception, Right now, what could go wrong there? That is the most pacific, you know, non. That sounds like the, the, the just a machine to produce nonviolence, right? Like, I, I I honor all human life equally, all the way down to the embryo, and mm-hmm. it's all just it's worth perfectly protecting insofar as we're able, right? Okay, great, you know, default position. Except we develop something like embryonic stem cell research, right? And now you've got religious maniacs who think that there are 500 souls in a Petri dish that they can't see, but they're fertilized ova, and you can't experiment on fertilized ova, even if you're going to develop therapies to, to heal people who've got full body burns or spinal cord injuries or Alzheimer's disease. Or So we had in, in the U.S., in some ways we found a workaround, but for at least a decade. Ovaltine. That was it, right? It was Ovaltine. Ovaltine. Yeah. yeah. yeah they could, that was the workaround. <laughs> for, we, we lost at least a decade on embryonic stem cell research simply because of religious ideas about souls in Petri dishes, right? Now, born of this, this default, again, on, on its face, totally benign notion that all human life down to the zygote needs to be respected equally. Mm-hmm. But the, this is quite a quite crazy idea because you have people who are literally saying that speck in a Petri dish that I can't see is just as important to me. It's just, a, in a, just as appropriate object of my moral concern as a girl who you can wheel up in a wheelchair who can't walk but may yet be able to walk if we made a breakthrough in right. spinal cord regeneration. Right. Smartless gets support from Viator. Experiences are what people love the most about travel. They create long-lasting moments that make memories and connections that will last well beyond the trip. Viator is the place to go to book memorable travel experiences. They offer everything from simple tours to extreme adventures. I remember a couple years ago, I went on vacation with Jason and a bunch of other friends to the Bahamas, and it was really, really great. I I made tons of memories. I still talk about it with Jason. So go travel. It's fun, and it's true. They really create memories. 
Viator's travel experiences have millions of real traveler reviews, so you have the information you need to book the best activities for your trip. With over 300,000 bookable experiences to choose from in over 190 countries, so there's something for everyone. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking. One app, over 300,000 experiences you'll remember. Do more with Viator. Hey there, Smartless listener. I'm here to tell you that there's no reason to panic the next time you're searching for the perfect gift. Now you can use Gift Mode on Etsy. Gift Mode on Etsy is here to take the stress out of gifting so you can find the perfect item for anyone and any occasion. Now it's easy to find gifts made by independent sellers for all the people in your life. Whether you're searching for unique recipe platters, cookware, or outdoor grill accessories for the chef in your life, they've got it all. From 90s nostalgia and mixology to reality, reality TV and gaming, there's something for everyone on Etsy. You may even know a pickleballer looking to jazz up their gear. With Gift Mode, you'll be able to find a personalized gift that will make them feel special. A gifting moment is always around the corner, but whether it's a birthday, an anniversary, a holiday, or even just a day to say thank you, Gift Mode on Etsy has you covered. Need to find the perfect gift? Don't panic. Try Gift Mode now. We'd like to thank Organic Valley for their support. We've all wandered the grocery store looking for the best dairy products, right? Only to be stuck with an overwhelming number of options. With Organic Valley, you can feel good choosing their dairy products. Organic Valley Dairy doesn't come from big factory farms. Their products are ethically sourced from small family farms where cows spend lots of time grazing outside on organic pasture. They're headquartered in Wisconsin. Hi, Tracy. So you know they know how to make great dairy. Organic Valley sent me a lovely gift basket. I opened it. Right away, I chugged the milk. No joke. I think I was having a peanut butter sandwich that day. It was like perfect. I even had a little bite of the cottage cheese and... It was creamy and delicious. When you choose Organic Valley, not only will you enjoy great-tasting organic dairy, you'll help to save over 1,600 small organic family farms who are protecting over 400,000 acres of organic farmland and all the plants and animals that call it home. To find Organic Valley Dairy near you, visit ov.coop. I can't imagine how many arguments you've had with people uh, with respect to that, that position on embryos, et cetera. And then mm. also these are the people who are protecting those souls who are also very willing to allow everybody to have a gun or to shoot that gun or to uh, kill criminals who are convicted of certain crimes. Mm. Um, how can you apply the same, right? I mean, how many millions of arguments have you had on that, that particular subject? Yeah, you know, uh, the gun topic is also interesting. I have sort of non-standard views there as well. But um, you can push this view into obvious hypocrisy because people are, this is, I forget what the line is, but, you know, the Christian right really cares about you, you know, up until the moment you're born. And then, you know, then there's, <laughs> they have all kinds of ideas that seem to be antithetical right. to human well-being after that. What we need is an error-correcting mechanism by which to continually revise our policies and our norms in response to what we find out about the world. And what would that be? That really is free speech guided by intellectual honesty and guided by just an, an openness to evidence and argument, right? So it's very easy to imagine the conditions under which I could be convinced that Jesus is the son of God, right? I mean, there is some evidence that, that you know, he, Jesus could show up, right? If, if the second coming and the rapture happens as 
advertised by evangelicals, you know, that'll be a science experiment, you know, finally consummated in human history, right? You know, well, just take a look at Will. I mean, yeah. Um, yeah. Listen, pretty know. damn close. Uh, let me, I think that the only solution to these problems is always economic. If we make it economically disadvantageous to believe in a religion, then, then it'll shift. That's the only thing that moves anything in this country. Consistently. I mean, you know, we, they, they ask people to stop smoking cigarettes, not because the fucking government gives a shit about us smoking <laughs> cigarettes, but because they didn't want to have to pay for the health care of people who were sick. Full stop. Yeah, no, you, I don't think, well, I mean, there's some economic policy <laughs> policy to change here, which I, I don't think religions should have the tax advantages they do. I mean, that, that, right. that doesn't make a lot of sense. But, no, you, you can't be punishing people economically as a method for changing their minds um, I think, you know, I think this larger question of incentives in society is a huge one. And, and we, we definitely want to be, we want to make things easier and easier, which is to say we want to incentive, we want the incentives aligned right. uh, for people to be moral and and responsible and do the right thing, even when their moral intuitions would would, would reliably fail. Uh, and we want them to be rational. But, it, but it's more a matter of norms. It's not a matter of actual penalties. It's like, what is it taboo to say? You know, like you can go through a PhD program in, in any fundamental science, you know, physics, chemistry, biology, to say nothing of the social sciences, and never have your religious beliefs challenged, right? right. Like literally you can get a PhD in physics all the while being a fundamentalist Christian who thinks the universe is 6,000 years old, right. and the Bible is a perfect record of its origin. And now you would be, you, you have to navigate that personally with some considerable cognitive dissonance, right? I mean, there's just no way to square your religious beliefs with what we know about physics. Uh, you know, to take the age of the universe as just a single data point. But there's no one in a lab who's going to sit you down and say, listen, okay, you, you know, I know what you think you know about, you know, God and angels and the afterlife and, and uh, you know, Jesus flying and healing the dead and, you know, raising the dead and all the rest and the coming resurrection. None of this makes any sense in, in terms of what you're Wait, learning he could here. fly? <laughs> yeah, he could fly. I didn't know that. Yeah, you too will fly if you're a rapper. That might turn That's me. why he wears a cape. Oh, That's yeah, why yeah. he wears the fucking cape. I always yeah. thought it was a different guy. You know, I remember one time uh, being in a meeting of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous and, and having a guy who was a newcomer saying, and I'm not, who knows, who it could be anybody, saying, he said, I can't get around this acceptance of God. I can't. I'm a, I'm a... I'm a scientist and that I'm having a really tough time with it. And mm -hmm. he basically ended up dropping out. And I get But isn't there isn't there a secular hack for that in AA? There where is you can just talk about the, the you know the, the, the universe at large and, and all that we don't know about it. There is, and I you know, I in fact even talked to him about it and said, Listen, I struggle with this idea, of course, of organized religion and God and all that sort of stuff. And I have a hack that I use that helps me. Um, you know, and and that is my sort of interpretation of what God is, I use that in order to get over the same hurdle that you're talking about. Yeah. I, ha I have a totally random, but not random, but kind of random question. What do you say about all those people that claim they died on the operating table and came back? Yeah. Like they even describe what they saw above them in the room. And there's so many of those stories. So what is that white light? Do you believe in it? What is it? Right. So, so yeah, this is a, a clearly an experience people seem to have had, right? And I think the crucial thing to observe there is that none of these people actually died, 
right? Because they, they came back and told us about this experience, right? So they, they didn't suffer brain death, right? So the brain is, is on and functioning, and the fact that they can come back and, and talk to us is proof of that much, right? So, yeah, yeah I mean, they, they, they've, you know, many of them suffered cardiac arrest or some other, you know, experience that, you know, physiologically that, that justifies them calling this a near-death experience. And then there's all these other experiences people have in meditation and, you know, through psychedelics yeah. and just through you know, other perturbations of it's their nervous DMT. system. It's just DMT. Yeah, What's well, DMT? Yeah, so, so DMT, which I haven't taken, I, mean, I have a, you know... Uh, Yet. ...experimented with psychedelics, but I, I have not tried DMT, uh, though I would... I would Will like will to. hook you up. Will, usually yeah. the first one's free, right? There's or, no hookup. Yeah. It's like the four of us are going on a ranch for a weekend, and it's like in very safe... Yeah. From what I understand, I've never done it either. Oh, is this that drink you drink and then you oh, get no, you're, crazy? Well, you're talking about That's ayahuasca awesome. there, which is oh, no, it's also DMT, but it's it slower release. Orally He's a rapper, version. isn't he? DMT? He was. He was. <laughs> but but DMT, yeah. as Samuel is about to explain to you, is is the um, it occurs naturally in the human body, and you can also get it from plants, et cetera. Right, Sam? Yeah. So DMT is a a molecule which is almost ubiquitous in nature it is yet yeah, it's in plants and it's in it's an endogenous you know neurotransmitter uh, the the function of which we don't really understand but you know our, our brains do produce it you know although arguably probably not in in the kind of quantity that that would necessarily explain near-death experiences but that, that is one thesis about near-death experience maybe this is a sudden release of dmt if you're about to tell me that dmt is going to one day give us the ability to fly i'm <laughs> totally doing it well apparently dmt is the or the smoking or or injected injected version of it which is um you know a very similar experience apparently is the most intense psychedelic experience of you know among those who have tried everything they they claim that if you get enough on board I mean I think there's a challenge to actually smoke enough it's, it's supposed to be very unpleasant to smoke so if you if you get enough the experience is of being kind of shot out of your body and going elsewhere and what and how okay. you characterize that elsewhere is is uh you know open to some debate but it is an elsewhere that puts you rather often in contact with what seem to be other beings Right, and uh -huh. these beans have a kind of alien insect-like quality. I mean, Terence McKenna, who raved about this for for decades, called them uh, self-transforming machine elves. Right, so you you, <laughs> you could suddenly appear in a room where TFME. where these these elf-like aliens are creating objects, which you know, on Terence's account, were a kind of language, and it's just like the most you know blindingly beautiful, bejeweled Fabergé eggs of meaning. That they're busily trying to to give you and to get you to do what they're doing, right? So, you're, but the, the crucial yeah. part of the phenomenology Jason here is, and Jason and Will are my DMT. That's how yeah. I got. Mm -hmm. I think you're going to get to which is which is that this happens to people and people describe very similar experiences, right? It sounds like yeah. hell getting there, though. Well, the, but the thing that's interesting about this is that unlike most other psychedelic experiences where it is just that the sense is, is of having your perception of reality totally changed, right? And you can, you can lose your sense of self and all of that. And, you know, that's very common, you know, with LSD or psilocybin. With DMT, you know, again, this, the smoked version, this isn't, I don't think this is quite as common on ayahuasca. That's, it's got its own uh, range of experiences. Luggage. But the, the, the smoked or injected experience of, of DMT is one of being put elsewhere and finding yourself in relationship to other beings. And these again, these beings are almost never the characters sprung from 
you know, a human religion, right? Is that people aren't meeting the Virgin Mary or Jesus. They're meeting aliens or yeah. insects or reptiles. I mean, that like, you know, one guy claimed to have been raped by a crocodile, you know, in one of these case studies. Maybe it's on that island, Sean. Probably not as good as, as, as it sounds. Yeah. Uh, there you go. But, so, but what's, what, what, again, what's striking to me is that people often describe this the same experience. People who, you know, over the years will often describe meeting these aliens, these little insect-like people or whatever, and mm-hmm. and they all have these this sort of similar characteristics and similar experience, um, which is remarkable. Yeah. So the same same cute crocodile in everybody's um, right. yeah. recollection. Not, not everybody gets the crocodile. That's not like everybody the, gets the crocodile. That, yeah. That's the that's boss the, fight you don't want. And the experience is like 20 minutes. It's not, it's yeah, not eight well that, hours. That's the other thing that's amazing. It's like, it's less. And it's there's like, no fee. It's this is yeah. it, this is free. If you're in the right circle, <laughs> is there a link? Yeah. Is there a link or anything? <laughs> free, free to is those who can link? afford yeah. it. Very expensive to those who can't. Yes, we have a discount code in the chat, Jason, and you can <laughs> access that. I know you're big on mindfulness and meditation. Yeah, so yeah, so meditation is uh, another way of coming at some of this terrain, and it's it's actually it informed my view of religion too, because you know I spent in my twenties you know, a lot of time. Uh, practicing meditation. I spent close to two years on silent meditation retreats, you know, you know, Buddhist context, but without thinking of myself really as a Buddhist, just wanting to explore, you know, just what was possible in terms of changing my moment to moment experience of the mind and, and the world. And, yeah. and then, you know, the, the, the first books I wrote were my effort to bring those kinds of insights into harmony with what we could understand about the mind through, you know, 21st century methods like neuroscience and moral philosophy and and philosophy of mind. And so there's clearly a baby in the bathwater we want to save in religion. I mean, there, there's no question that there's an experience you can have that that makes you feel very much like, you know, someone like Jesus, right, or Buddha, right? Like uh, unconditional love is a state of mind that can be experienced. And you can you can get there on MDMA if you are lucky and you can get there by practicing meditation. And there are all kinds of other experiences on the menu, whether you get there through something like DMT or LSD or psilocybin. I mean, it's just like the, the, the mansion of, of possible experience is vast. And some of these experiences have a lot to say about how good life could be in the present for more and more of us if we got our shit together. And um, unlike psychedelics, meditation is a very incremental and, you know, fairly predictable way of navigating that landscape of, of changes in, in mental state. So. Right. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, shoot that, shoot that! And even, checkout's not until four, so. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. That's the powerful backing of American Express. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Terms apply. Smartlist is sponsored by Allstate. Some people just know the best rate for you is a rate based on you with Allstate. The more safely you drive, the less you'll pay. I feel like I'm a safe driver. I am constantly, constantly aware of people to the left, to the right, to the front, and to the back of me. I'm always checking my mirrors. I pay attention to the road rules. Uh, I, I think I feel like I'm a really good, smart, safe, careful driver, like many of you. So I believe you shouldn't be paying the same auto insurance rate as those other 
drivers on the road that may be not as safe as you feel you are. Safe drivers like us should be saving money based on our everyday safe driving. So why would you want to pay a rate based on anyone else? Save with DriveWise in the Allstate app and only pay a rate based on you. It's just another way to save when you're in good hands with Allstate. Not available in Alaska or California. Subject to terms and conditions, rates vary by state. In some states, participation in DriveWise allows Allstate to use your driving data for rating and your rate could increase with high-risk driving. As a person with a very deep voice, I'm hired all the time for advertising campaigns. But a deep voice doesn't sell B2B. And advertising on the wrong platform doesn't sell B2B either. That's why if you're a B2B marketer, you should use LinkedIn ads. LinkedIn has the targeting capabilities to help you reach the world's largest professional audience. That's right, over 70 million decision makers all in one place. All the big wigs, then medium wigs. Also small wigs who are on the path to becoming big wigs. Okay, that's enough about wigs. LinkedIn ads allows you to focus on getting your B2B message to the right people. So, does that mean you should use ads on LinkedIn instead of hiring me, the man with the deepest voice in the world? Yes. Yes, it does. Get started today and see why LinkedIn is the place to be to be. We'll even give you a $100 credit on your next campaign. Go to linkedin.com slash smartless to claim your credit. That's linkedin.com slash smartless. Terms and conditions apply. Now, Sam, hmm. uh, back to my two kind of just more random questions. Is there an afterlife is my one question. And then yeah. I second, my last question to you is define a good life because so many people want to achieve happiness. And what does that mean to you? Right. So, so on the first question, that, that really is a question about what is the relationship between consciousness and the physical world, right? So if consciousness is something that is being produced by information processing in the brain, in our case, and the brain dies, uh, then you would expect conscious the, the light that is consciousness to go out right without residue. There's no there's nothing to lift off the brain and go elsewhere. Certainly not to uh, a heaven that that uh, you know has rivers of milk and honey and and oh. etc. So the truth is we don't actually know how consciousness is entangled with the physics of things. We don't know how at what point it arises. We don't really know that neurons produce it although you're on you're certainly on firm ground in in neuroscience and in science generally if you if that's your default assumption there, there's every reason to believe that the mind you know the rest of mind you know language processing an ability to see and hear and smell and think that that is what the brain is doing right and if you damage parts of the brain you can selectively damage those capacities and if you damage the whole brain at death there's every reason to believe you lose all of that right and this is another reason why the near death experiences are a little fishy because people go into a tunnel of light and they recognize their grandmother and they have conversations apparently in in, in a language they understand with I see a hot crocodile I've been trying yeah. to get his number um <laughs> <laughs> sorry keep going Sam so to recognize anyone's grandmother or a crocodile still you're still retaining some faculties which we have every reason to believe are being mediated by brain activity right so mm -hmm. uh, to know that it was a crocodile and not a buffalo is to know no, something no. about animals. There was no doubt. And, no yeah, doubt. Right, yeah. Okay. So <laughs> sorry. So that part of your your temporal lobe was probably still online. Um, now, so the thesis here is that if you destroy the, the brain entirely, as if by magic, you, all of your faculties you know go elsewhere, and you are you know you you enjoy some afterlife. There's reason to be skeptical of that, but consciousness itself, the fact that the lights are on. Right, the fact that seeing and hearing 
and other sense experiences are associated with a point of view, right, which need not be so, right? I mean, we're, we're in the process of building artificial intelligence, which can see and hear and, and yeah. you know, detect faces and, and, and parse natural language and all the rest. And very soon on some of these tasks, it, it's already doing it better than we are. And ultimately, it will do everything better than we do. But there'll be a, an open question is there something that is like to be one of these machines? I.e., are these machines conscious? Wait till the religious folks get their hands on yeah. those robots. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, exactly. Then, we, then we'll have to convert them. Um, but, but no, but then, then there's a real question of, you know, could we inadvertently build conscious machines or areas of the internet inhabited by, you know, billions of conscious minds, right? I mean, Ex Machina. Did you ever see that movie, Ex Machina? Yeah, yeah, that was great. Yeah. That was great. Yeah. So could we build either individual intelligences or simulated worlds populated by conscious minds? The interesting case is that we could do this inadvertently. It mm -hmm. could be just a fact that as you scale up in intelligence, consciousness comes along for the ride at some point, right? And <laughs> we could get there without actually understanding how consciousness arises. And we could then find ourselves in the position, wittingly or not, of having created hells and populated them, right? We could create machines that can suffer every bit as much as we can suffer or even more, you know, suffer in ways that we can't even imagine because these minds are not constituted like our own. And obviously that'd be a terrible thing to do. And that's something that we could stumble into. And a moral quandary if you talk about unplugging it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, are you murdering your computer if you unplug it once your computer is conscious? Sure. Given that, so if you think that the conscious mind, like if we were to give Sean a lobotomy, would we notice? Yeah. Mm. <laughs> this is a great question. I mean, because seriously, I haven't understood a word you said this entire podcast. <laughs> That's a great I, question. I'm going to have to look at it. There are things like lobotomies where you wouldn't notice where there, you know, the, the split brain procedure is something that is, that, you know, grand mal uh, epileptics get uh, where you divide the left and right hemispheres. And for the longest time, people thought these people were unchanged. But what actually happens is that you have now created two islands of subjectivity in the brain and two independent points of view where the right hemisphere quite literally doesn't know what the left hemisphere is, is doing. And, and you can tease this out in experiments. And uh, you, you have created kind of t two subjects, um, which, wow. is, which is fascinating. But I, I didn't answer your question. Uh, I think all of this is to say that the question of, about an afterlife or you know, survival of death is a question about how consciousness arises. You know, so whatever is true there, again, we, we, we have to bracket that. We don't yet know, although you're, you're, you're not going to embarrass yourself in science by assuming that it is at some level produced by computations in the brain and therefore dis you know, the lights go out when you die. Is, is there, yeah. But is there going to be a moment where scientists agree on that? Is that imminent, do you think, that the, they're going to say, okay, we've... That this is what happens when you die, you mean? Or no, or this, we finally figured out the moment where consciousness arises? I, I think it's conceivable, but I think what's even more likely is that we will lose sight of it as an interesting question because we will build machines that seem conscious to us. They will drive our intuitions of of, that cause us to ascribe consciousness to other people so fully that we will just lose sight of it as being an interesting question. I mean, you'll be, you know, you're at a certain point, whether they're humanoid robots or, you know, whether it's Siri on your phone, knowing more about you and passing, you know, every possible test of rationality and empathy and, you know, everything else that you get from another person so well that, again, you'll just find yourself in relationship Right, you just won't you won't lose any more thought over whether this thing is conscious than you worry that whether your dog is conscious or whether your your wife is. Right, right. right. In, insert joke there. Did you <laughs> like that movie, Her? Spike Jones' movie? Yeah, 
Yeah, no, I thought that was pretty interesting too. I, yeah. mean, I, I thought the, the final vision of just them losing interest in us and disappearing yeah. was. I yeah. love that. It was a great yeah, idea. Yeah, me too. Yeah. Beautiful. Spoiler. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. So then, so back to my other question. So sorry to repeat it, but like, so what constitutes a good life for Sam Harris? Ultimately, meditation is the reference point here. And I guess I would come back to this um, point of confusion that is very easy for people to fall into, which is ultimately uh, meditation can mean many different things, right? But what I mean by it and what I think we should mean by it is it's not actually something. It's not actually a practice. When you're meditating, you're simply no longer lost in thought. You're not identified with thoughts as they arise. Uh-huh. And, and therefore, your attention is truly available to notice consciousness and its contents, right? And, and thoughts are among the contents of consciousness. So you're, you're noticing, feeling, and, and, and seeing, and smelling, and the, the, the character of your experience more vividly. And you're not being captured by this false point of view that you are the thinker of your thoughts. Right. It's it's the absence of ego in a way, if, yeah. if you will. And but for me, what was difficult was, and maybe this is a condition of 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 the world in which we live now. I don't know if it was easier to meditate a hundred years ago or two hundred years ago, but yeah. everything seems so busy. So I found it very very hard when I first started to to quiet my mind was was much harder than I thought it would be. And I guess that how do you me, think we feel when you're talking? That's where I wish you were on a two-year <laughs> silent retreat. <laughs> Sam, sorry, please continue. So, Sam, a, a, a good life wouldn't be a Sunday afternoon watching your favorite football game with a beer. Well, well no, no, it, it could it could definitely be that, right? So, the, so, okay. so, but this point of view, once you recognize that, it's actually ultimately is not a matter of quieting the mind either. It's a matter of recognizing everything as it appears, including thoughts, right? So there's a, there's a metaphor in Tibetan Buddhism um, which says that, you know, ultimately thoughts are like thieves entering an empty house. There's nothing for them to steal, right? And so you, you want to get to a point, of, a point of view where everything is arising in its own place, right? There's just consciousness yeah. and its contents. And, and, and every experience you could possibly have, whether it's on DMT or watching yeah. football, drinking beer, all yeah. of it has a, has a single status, it doesn't preclude anything except the thing that does preclude and the reason why meditation is good for you ultimately, right? Apart uh-huh. from all the other ancillary benefits, like, you know, I mean, it may in fact mm-hmm. be good for your health in other ways. Uh-huh. But the truth is, I would recommend it even if it were a little bad for you uh, in yeah. all kinds of other ways for this reason. It cancels the the mechanism in your mind that leads you to suffer unnecessarily, Right? Mm-hmm. When you look at the character of your psychological suffering, all yeah. of your worry and your anxiety and your regret and your shame and your embarrassment, yeah. all of it right, is a matter of thinking without knowing that you're thinking. That's what the self is, really. I mean, the, 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 the small self, the sense of being this embattled you know, subject in the head, it, that's what it feels like to be lost in thought. I mean, you're, like, right. you're, 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 you're having a conversation with yourself, paradoxically, that you're not able to inspect because you're busy identified with each new thought that springs into consciousness. I mean, so just to take it right down to the, you know, the, the tracks of this conversation, I'm talking and you, each of you, if you're normal people, have a voice in your heads that is competing with just listening to what I'm saying, right? So I'm saying something and you might think, well, what the fuck does that mean, right? Well, that voice in the head, what the fuck does that mean? That, for most people, that feels like a self, Right? That feels like what they are. And that just springs into view. There's no perspective on it. There's no sense of there being space around it or that there's a condition in which it's appearing. 
And meditation is a practice of just dropping back and recognizing thoughts, you know, images and, and, and sounds in the mind, you know, linguistic, you know, sounds. T- taking a step back and so like eliminating all those feelings of yeah. regret or doubt or shame. Yeah, I love yeah. that. That is such a fascinating well, way. Well, it's just, a... I mean, it can sound too abstract the way I put it, but just you, when you, if you think of what will prevent you from having the best day of your life today. I mean, we all know what it's like to be deeply happy, uh, at least if only for moments, right? To have a moment with your your kids or your your spouse or just yourself, just you know, watching a sunset. We all know what it's like to just fully connect with the present moment in a way that doesn't leave us looking over our own shoulder, wondering whether this is going to get good or wondering what's going to happen a few moments from now or thinking about the past and how to get back. It's like it's all about this moment right here. Yeah. What is the thing that prevents that from happening on demand? It is an inability to pay sufficient attention to the present moment. Yeah. I remember distinctly as a kid having moments of discomfort and thinking, Mm -hmm. quite literally fantasizing about what it would be like to be a robot in that moment and to be be completely cut off from emotion. And And I'd think sort of... I was almost envious of of the 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 ability to or the inability to um, feel emotion or have those things or or be in um, you know I, I wanted to be cut off from that in that way the cut off from self and then I thought well that would be a great way to go through life and then you could you wouldn't be affected by anything. Of course, the sort of hole in that is that I wouldn't be able to enjoy a, a good experience either because I wouldn't be able to enjoy any. I wouldn't be able to yeah, have any but, experience. Well, but, but this is a crucial point that, that you know, mindfulness meditation, which is the, is the type I recommend, isn't a matter of being cut off from even negative emotion. I mean, so if you feel anger or regret or sadness, whatever it is, it's a matter of being willing to feel it totally. I mean, let yourself burn up with that emotion. The, the crucial difference is... Every time you notice you're getting lost in thought about why you have every reason to be angry or sad or how bad the future is going to be or what an asshole that person was or I can't believe they said that on Twitter about me. Fuck them, right? That conversation, you have to break the spell of identification with those thoughts and be willing to just feel the emotion. And you feel it You feel it 100%. I mean, the, the normal, the default state is actually to avoid feeling it. We have resistance to these these emotions. So part of what keeps you stuck in this in this automaticity of, of thinking about, you know, your anger, say, is it's an effort to solve the problem of I, you don't want to feel this way anymore. You're angry and you're resistant to this feeling. You don't want, you don't like this feeling. And now you're thinking about all the stuff you should do to discharge your anger. You know, like, oh, I'm just going to tell her to fuck off, right? Watch, I'm going to type this. And so... All of that is a way of not actually being willing to fully feel it. And if you do fully feel it and you break the connection to thought, nothing lasts. I mean, anger lasts for 15 seconds, right? So it's yeah. literally impossible to stay angry for a minute if you, unless you get lost in thought again about the reason why you, you should be angry. Uh-huh. And so that, that on the other side of that realization is a freedom to just, you can decide, okay, well, how long do I want to stay angry about this? Like, is, is anger actually useful? I'm not, I'm not saying anger is never useful, but it's rarely useful to maintain. It's, I mean, for me, it's useful as a signal. It's like a salient signal that, you know, something is really worth paying attention here. Like, okay, I'm in the presence of a total asshole who just did something to piss me off. And now how do I want to respond? Responding from that place of anger isn't usually the best best course. And so you, but it gives you this, if you don't have any perspective on it, you will stay angry for as long as you'll stay angry for. I mean, you'll stay angry for a day, a week, and and, and you'll, and it'll have all the behavioral consequences 
it has, and, and you, have, you have literally no degree of freedom there. So I'm going to call you next time I want to fire off a reply email to my mom okay. because I think that you're Waiting going to be is very... Waiting is, is a good algorithm there. You're yeah. going to be very helpful. Yeah. She has been super annoying lately. I don't mind saying that on the podcast. Boy. Well, Sammy, I can call you Sammy, right? Sure. Uh, yes. I, I uh, really have been such a fan for so, so long. I want to thank you for being here today. And you, I could listen to you talk all day long. I know, it's incredible. Nice. I, I really... Just find you so fascinating, and um, so thank you. And great uh, to meet you guys. Really appreciate it, Sam. Thank you so much. I hope when civilization reboots, we can meet in person. Yeah, oh, that would be a blast. What a delight that would be. Yeah. Thanks for yeah. your time and your knowledge. Thanks, Sam. Thank you, Sam. Nice to meet you guys. Appreciate it. Nice to meet you, Sam. See you, pal. What? Yeah. A, what a uh, what an beautifully articulate uh guy he is i mean those are really abstract thoughts and to be able to i wanted to every all of his thoughts were so well thought out and articulated as you said and i wanted to every time he finished it like a really long great point i wanted to go that's what i always say (laughs) (laughs) um have you guys ever read letter to a christian nation it's really no. fascinating. It's it's literally you can read it like in a day. It's, it's I'm such a fast reader. I bet you I could read it in a minute. Okay. You actually are a fast reader, aren't you, Will? I yeah. am. Yeah, I do read a lot, but I will read it. And I know a bunch of people who are uh, who are um, friends who who we know who are big fans of his and and um, talk about him all the time and love him and uh, yeah, he's, just, so he's fascinating, right? Super smart. You know what I meant to ask him? I meant to ask him if he knew because I would think that Ricky. He and Ricky would share a lot of similar views. Jervis. My new puppy? Not your new puppy, but I haven't spoken to your puppy, so I don't know. Maybe. Oh, because his maybe name is Ricky. Too. Yeah. All right. Why would you say he and Gervais would be? Because Gervais is a he's a um, I was going to say a big atheist. He's not a big atheist, but he but these are a lot of uh, he has a similar points of view on a lot of. Did this you stuff. ever see Gervais debate it with Colbert? No. no. It's fascinating. You can YouTube it. It's really cool. Wow. And funny. Gervais is hilarious on this subject. He's great. Yeah. He's. Oh, I wonder if they know each other. Uh, that was uh, that was very very fulfilling. Thank you for the oh, brain meal there. Yeah, Sean. for sure. Sean, what a guest! What a guest! He's the best. All right, until next time. Yeah, until next time. Oh, wait, what's what's my new sign off? What was my new sign off? Oh, I think it was bye. Bye. Pasta. <laughs> <sighs> Pasta. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Oh fuck! I hope COVID ends God. soon. <laughs> It's eating your brain. Smart. If you like Smartless, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. Hey, listener, it's Will. Of course, you you knew that. But I wanted to highlight one recent chat and giggle of Smartless that I really enjoyed with the great Mike Birbiglia. I can't believe Jason actually has me saying chat and giggle now. If you are a faithful listener, you know one of our big pet peeves is how everyone nowadays claims the mantle of uh, storyteller. But if anyone is actually worthy of that title, it would be Mike Birbiglia. Mike has put together multiple one-man shows on Broadway that have received critical acclaim. Fun fact about Mike is that he auditioned for, but obviously didn't get the 
the role of Jim in The Office, Gary in Veep, and the role of Buster in Arrested Development. In this episode, Jason and I actually slipped back into our Arrested characters and improvised a scene with Mike as Buster, which was very fun for us. Less fun for Mike, but fun for us. We also cover everything from Mike's extremely dangerous sleepwalking and why he likes the word plaza so much. Give a listen if you haven't. It's worth it. 